welcome to another podcast from Basic Scotland. These are a series of brief snapshots about less talked about topics within pre-hospital care in Scotland, and some deep dives into some more specialist areas with experts from a variety of disciplines. My name's Dave, I'm an army surgical trainee, a basics responder, and a mountain rescue doctor based in Pitlochry. Joining us today, we have Les Gordon. Les is a very experienced anaesthetist who's got a specialist interest in difficult airway management. He instructs on the National Training in Emergency Airway Management course. He's heavily involved in mountain rescue for 11 or 12 years now, based in the Lake District. And he's attended, probably heading towards 500-ish rescues. And he was part of the hypothermia panel we had chatting to us a few months back at the start of the winter. Les, thanks so much for coming on and having a chat to us today. Thank you very much indeed, Dave, for the introduction. So it's an honour to contributing to this. So what we've asked you to unpick today and dive into a bit of detail is the primary survey, which is something that is pretty familiar to all of us, but actually it's something that we kind of do and don't necessarily think about. Totally agree. It's become part of our normal vocabulary, but actually it's easy for it to drift in practice from the ideal and that can have consequences for the patient. So it's worthwhile looking at it again and considering the issues. So I guess to kind of start from the beginning, where did it all come from? Well, that's a very interesting question. Interestingly, the concept of ABC was born in the 1950s out of an idea from a chap called Peter Safar, who many people will have heard of. In some ways, he's one of the fathers of resuscitation. He was born in 1924, but he emigrated to America after the war, after he'd qualified as a doctor in 1949. And he did an amazing amount of research, published over a thousand papers, and was involved in many, many important inventions which we now take for granted. For example, he was co-inventor of mouth-to-mouth resuscitation in the mid-1950s, and he actually tested the feasibility of this by anesthetizing volunteers, paralyzing them, and then keeping them alive by breathing, doing mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. <laughs> breathing. Must have been it fun on the ethics board. Well, actually, nowadays, I have to say you would really have a problem with ethics, but clearly that wasn't the same issue then, which is just as well for us in a way. Subsequently, he realized he did a lot of work on resuscitation and he wrote a book called The ABC Concept in 1957, The ABC of Resuscitation, in which he wanted to make it possible for lay people to do resuscitation because you realize there was an incredible public health implication if people knew how to do basic resuscitation. But he also knew that it had to be an easy thing for them to remember. So he thought, well, what could be easier than ABC? And that's what he came up with, ABC, airway, breathing and circulation, which is the one that we're familiar with now. He added to it as well because he had D for drugs and defibrillation, E was for ECG and F was for fluids. He put an amazing amount of thought into all of this, and he was the first person to propose cooling people after a myocardial infarction. And he also worked with Asmund Lerdl, who was actually the founder of a Norwegian toy factory to make the first resuscitation dummy. And of course, we all know about Lerdl mannequins nowadays. We use them routinely. But in those days, it was a first. It's interesting how the kind of household names that we, we bandy around now, actually, I certainly had no idea of the depth of their involvement. Yeah, it's amazing actually to read the history. I do that occasionally because things that I think, oh, this is this a recent discovery or whatever? Actually, no, people have thought about them sometimes decades and decades ago, and they've just gradually come in. For example, he published his work in 1964 on resuscitation, and he called his paper Community-Wide Cardiopulmonary Resuscitation. And he recognized how many lives potentially could be helped. He proposed, for example, that we have cardiac monitoring wards to try and reduce death rates from infarcts. He was using adrenaline, except they were giving it intracardiac in those days, but he was doing that as part of resuscitation and he was using defibrillation and he he discussed the options of AC and DC currents and reckoned that DC was probably better. And so it's a fascinating paper to read. It's in the Journal of the Iowa Medical Society, and it is actually available online. 
Fantastic. It's something that we've spent the last few years trying to encourage community involvement in resuscitation through Sandpiper Wildcat and various other schemes across Scotland. And it's it's daft to think that actually this is a 70-year-old concept and we're just trying to refresh it as much as anything. Absolutely. But it's worth doing because it's clear there are more lay people, ordinary people outside than there are healthcare professionals. So if everybody knows how to do a bit, then actually it could have tremendous benefits to the population as a whole. The number of lives that could be potentially saved. And every so often I come across situations where we get called to cardiac arrest, say in the mountain rescue situation, and people said they had a go, but they didn't know what to do. They haven't been trained. And they, they not only there's a potential there to lose a life, and has happened on a few occasions that I've witnessed, but also the emotional impact for those people when they think, if I'd only known what to do, I might have made a difference. Absolutely. And what about, it's obviously that aimed at the cardiac side of things. What about in terms of trauma? How was that? Because that's almost evolved in parallel. It did. It came a few years later. And the big step forward for that was ATLS, something we're all familiar with now, and it's trips off the tongue. But actually, the story behind that is also very interesting. It's another example of where somebody had a tremendous personal mishap in their life and brought enormous good out of it. So the inventor of ATLS was Dr. James Steiner, who was an orthopedic surgeon. And he was in an aircraft with his family in 1976, and his wife was killed during that. The analogous situation I was thinking of was the Elaine Bromley situation, where Martin Bromley, her husband, Elaine tragically died with a difficult intubation and hypoxic brain damage after going in for an elective operation. But he brought tremendous good out of that because he created an organization for teaching people about human factors in a resuscitation, a difficult and a stressful situation in the clinical setting, and brought good out of it. So Dr. Steiner was involved in this air crash. He and his four children had significant injuries, and they eventually got to a small hospital. They managed to flag down some local motorists and were taken to a local hospital. And there, the staff had no training for proper triage and treatment because it was in the days before ATLS. And so it was a little peripheral hospital that was manned just by a couple of GPs. No offence to GPs, but that was way outside their normal experience. Eventually, Dr. Steiner was transferred to a larger hospital. The family was sorted out there, but he realised he wanted to prevent poor care from happening again by developing a way to teach rural physicians how to manage trauma. And he actually said, and this is a quote which you can read, there are a lot of reviews about him and ATLS, but he said, when I can provide better care in the field with limited resources than my children and I received at the primary facility, there's something wrong with the system and the system has to be changed. So he created ATLS, which in those days was based on sort of ACLS, cardiac life support. Whereas in traditional medicine, the approach is to take a full history and a full examination. You put it all together, reach a diagnosis and you treat. Dr. Steiner realized, and this was the revolutionary idea, that unstable patients with acute problems need a different approach. And so what he thought was what should actually happen is in these cases, you should see a problem and fix it and then move on to the next and so on and so forth. So ATLS approaches trauma as a sort of a surgical disease and puts the focus on treating the greatest threats to life first. The assumption being that if you can get appropriate and timely care, you can improve the outcome. And so that's the core principle of ATLS, emphasizing rapid initial assessment, triage, which is means to sort, primary management of the trauma patient with a focus on implementing life-saving procedures, reevaluate, stabilize and transfer when appropriate. And I guess that kind of combination of the medicine and the cardiac has given us what we see and, and use day to day now in terms of our ABCDE approach, plus or minus the catastrophic hemorrhage piece that gets tacked on the front. Yes, that's right. The ATLS, as Steiner did it, was the basic ABCDE. So airway and cervical spine control, breathing and ventilation, circulation and hemorrhage control, disability, which means more to do with disturbance of conscious level, really, than just neurological status per se, like paralysis, although that's important too, and then exposure and environmental control. And then what he said was, after that, you can do a head-to-toe examination, what he called the secondary survey, which you've got, you can do at your leisure then and look at everything. 
But what, of course, is important, and this is important for the listeners to remember, is that the secondary survey comes if there's time. What you must never do is skimp on the primary survey because that is where you will pick up and manage and stabilize life-threatening situations. So having got the basics of where stuff came from, I guess the next area to look at is how things have been modified over the years. Because most of us who have been involved for a little while would be aware that things change over time and that concepts come and go. So what have the changes to the primary survey been? Okay, there have been quite a lot because what's happened is people have got familiar with it. They've decided that actually things and they need to be modified according to the situation that they actually are working in and the types of injuries and illnesses that they're coming into contact with. So, for example, and particularly for us, like in a remote location, the idea of assessment of danger, so therefore safety for yourself, the team, and then the casualty, always in that order, is particularly important. Also, what was added was whether they respond to a simple alert. You don't do a full AVPU or GCS assessment then, but, you know, hello, hello, can you hear me? Or hello, I'm Les from the Mountain Rescue Team, and they don't respond. But in addition, there have been more specific things, like the one you mentioned before of catastrophic hemorrhage. And that's come because quite quickly the military realised that the stuff that was in ATLS was great for an urban environment, but when you get high-powered, massive ballistic injuries, these are in a different category completely. And that's why they proceed. This was described or written up by Tim Hodgetts and his colleagues in 2006, but to put a catastrophic hemorrhage first, because they'd seen people really, you know, with limbs hanging off, hosing out, so they would bleed to death faster then they would die if an airway was obstructed, for example. So hence the C, A, B, C, D, E. Another modifications are things like with airway management, if there's serious face injuries, a battlefield trauma life support, which is another example of a military modification, would be less worried about cervical spine and more worried about using a front of neck access, surgical airway in the management of the airway. And those changes are things that have kind of crept into civilian practice and certainly after the big terrorists incidents and even to a certain extent up in rural Scotland we still see the occasional catastrophic hemorrhage patient where as you say the hemorrhage will kill them before their airway problem does. It's interesting if you actually in basics actually do see somebody still alive with catastrophic hemorrhage because unless there's somebody on scene or the victim is able to do something about it for example put a tourniquet around their own leg they're actually going to exsanguinate before emergency services get there. Because if you think about the cardiac output, five litres a minute, typically at rest, four to five litres a minute, you know, if, if you've got a big hole in a vessel, you're going to bleed out very quickly. I remember, it's going back a good few years ago now, but I was on call in the hospital during the Toxoth riots, and they brought in this chap who had an injury in his groin, and it wasn't a big injury, but to all intents and purposes, he almost bled to death. So I got the surgeon to put his hand in the groin. I didn't give him an anaesthetic because he didn't need anything. He just needed intubating. Got him into theatre, got some fluids in, started to get a little bit of a blood pressure, and then got the surgeon to try and put a clamp on what was the femoral artery and managed to control. And what we had was a little hole, probably at two millimetres across, which apparently was caused by a bit of CS gas canister fragment. But that fellow, through that hole, in the time it had taken for that to come in and for him to be brought in, virtually exsanguinated. So you can imagine it's happening if you happen to be on scene or doing some training when it occurs. But if you're called and it takes you 15 minutes to get there, it'd be amazing if they're still alive. And that's certainly always been the argument that for us, unless it happens to a fellow rescuer in a mountain rescue type environment, the chances of anybody surviving catastrophic hemorrhage by the time the team have mustered, and certainly in Tayside, it takes us an hour or so to get to the job, let alone get onto the hill. It tends to be a a fait accompli by that stage. Absolutely. We're the same. As you say, it could be one of us while we're at training, doing rope rescue training, or it could be we're out there and somebody nearby does. So we should be prepared mentally for it, but the likelihood of us actually seeing it acutely. In an ordinary situation not sort of during a terrorist situation for example probably very low so i guess the the theme is about that time criticality and about prioritization and that's always a bit that's difficult to hold in your head when there's so much going on and, and it's a pretty stressful environment very and i totally agree with that so the thing with primary survey is it's great because you've got hooks to hang things on and what i say to people when i'm teaching is you've only got to remember the first five letters of the alphabet in the order that they come 
and just focus on those and do not get distracted. You know, it's about looking for life threats, stabilizing them to keep the patient alive to reach definitive care. You're not going to cure anybody on the roadside, on the mountainside. What you've got to do is stabilize them and then they can get to definitive care. So it's a recognized structure that ensures that everything that is important is done. And you can use it, obviously, in trauma cases because that's where it was originally sort of aimed at. But actually, it's valid for medical cases because you can still have the same issues with medical problems. So don't forget, rarely is definitive treatment delivered based on a primary survey problem. So a general rule that I use is that if there's a primary survey problem is identified, by definition, this was a life threat. The patient needs hospitalization. That seems pretty reasonable. And I guess anything that gets picked up on secondary survey, you've got a bit more time to think about and potentially stream them to a different avenue of care that may not an acute receiving hospital. Absolutely. For example, if it turns out there's just a distal limb fracture and everything else is okay, well, you're right. That's quite different from having to go to a major trauma center. And there are all sorts of issues with choosing the right hospital if you can, not just from our point of view at the sharp end, if you like, but at the other end, you know, you don't want to be sending inappropriate patients where you're sending somebody that doesn't need to go to a major trauma center because they're not injured enough or sending somebody who should have gone to a major trauma center but didn't to an ordinary peripheral hospital is just as bad. Now, one of the big challenges, particularly for basics responders, is that nine times out of 10, it's me and a bit of kit in the back of my car. And the world is very different from that ATLS world where you've got your resus team on hand. Absolutely. And in that situation, you've got to do everything. For example, if you're going to stabilize the C-spine, if you do it with your hands, you're snookered because then you can't do anything else. So you've got to have thought these things through. If you do need to stabilize the C-spine, then you're better off having your kit at arm's length, for example, and putting that casualty's head between your knees. But obviously, the modern guidelines now for C-spine management are much more relaxed in a sense. If the patient is conscious, rely on them to look after their own C-spine. So a single-handed rescuer, as you say, has to do everything. You've got to be focused and just stick to the essentials. You can do most of the primary survey with your hands, your eyes, and your ears to identify life threats and manage them as quickly as possible. So, for example, if a mechanism of injury suggests a thoracic trauma, give oxygen. Don't waste time trying to get an oxygen saturation first. It, first of all, it may not be possible out there because the patient has got cold extremities or if they've had a bit of a head injury, they may actually be moving around and that, so the, the probe isn't going to give you a reading. And secondly, it just wastes time. If they could need oxygen, give it uh, because it's just common sense. Same with other things. You know, if, if they could be bleeding, it doesn't matter if the blood pressure is 70, 80, 90, 105, 60. You know, if they could be breathing, treat them appropriately. If, if the history suggests if it's a medical one and it could be a myocardial infarction, you go on the history, give aspirin. Don't waste time doing an ECG first in case you can see or whatever. Ideally, for example, in my view, I know you need oxygen saturation to guide oxygen use in an MI patient. But if they could be in cardiac failure, give oxygen. And as far as I'm aware, there's no evidence that a few minutes of oxygen given initially to a patient while they're being assessed and sorted out worsens outcome. Long term, yes, possibly, but not so. Similar with anaphylaxis, because it can present at different stages, can't it? It can present, it could be a rash initially, it could be uh, airway problems, it could be cardiovascular collapse. So as soon as you think it could be, don't delay, give adrenaline attacking problems early and then potentially thinking about de-escalating once you've got a bit more information you can safely do that yeah that's what i would say because you're at the stage at the beginning of gathering evidence and looking for trouble you can only afford to relax once you've done that and you know what the hand is that you've been dealt and you're working out what you have to do what about those occasions when sometimes I get called to back up a crew or you arrive at the same time as a crew? In terms of task allocation, how can we make the system even more efficient? In my view, if you're in that situation, and that's what I find usually with the mountain rescue team, that it is two or three people on scene or four or five, even better, depends on how quickly people arrive. But if that does happen, then you've got the luxury of being able to do a lot of things concurrently. And then what we do, and I'm sure you would do the same, is somebody's got to focus on the primary survey. 
but somebody else now can do the peripheral things that could be useful in terms of help guiding your management and making a diagnosis maybe getting an idea of severity of the condition and this is things like putting on a pulse oximeter measuring the bp ecg GCS, but they're all individually time-consuming events. Not massively, but if each one adds a minute, that's a long time if actually that delays you getting to a more serious life threat down the line. So the second person can do those sort of things. Clearly, if you've got several people, this is what we'll do is try and get somebody to stand back and take an overview of who's doing what. Other people, somebody will be preparing splints, somebody will be preparing something else, uh, somebody will be attending to evacuation considerations. The nice thing about that is they're not immersed in it and also that minimizes potential human factor issues because I know from my experience, if we get a fallen climber with serious injuries and I get involved in looking after him, you're just really totally focused on that case, the person that's arrested or about to arrest in front of you. Really interesting in terms of trying to divvy up those tasks and try and make things more efficient, as you say, and not lose track of the human factors elements. I work with a team who use the coma guy, whose sole task at the start of a job is clothes off, monitoring and access, which then gives them a nice, clear, defined set of priorities, and they can crack on with that whilst the primary survey is happening alongside them. That's a brilliant idea. Absolutely brilliant. Once you can get specific tasks, they focus on that, they do it really well, and you know all the bases are covered. I guess the next thing is what happens once you've done that quick, slick primary survey and you get to the end of it, there often seems to be a bit of a lull and you kind of lose momentum a bit. You can do, but it's not finished there, as we all know, once we've been involved in a few. Because the fact, unless something has been really clearly well stabilised, you've got to check and recheck because things change. Airways that are not self-supporting patients that are not conscious enough to look after their own airways or or their conscious level changes, their airway management may change, the quality of their airway may change. So therefore, it's always about checking and rechecking and looking for trends. Don't forget to look for trends because you could say, well, okay, saturation, you get a saturation reading, they're on oxygen and it's 96%. Well, that's lovely. Oh, great. But actually, is it going to stay that way? Because is a, it was a previously undiagnosed chest problem now starting to emerge. As more bleeding maybe takes place in the chest, as a pneumothorax starts to expand, suddenly the next saturation, if you don't check it, it could be 91. And you think, hang on a minute, what's going on here? You check the probe, is the oxygen still flowing? Yes, it is. Okay, what's going on? And then a few minutes later, it's 86. Now you're really in trouble and you'll miss that if you don't keep checking regularly and what you will do is you'll go from 96 to 86 and that will be a big jump you've missed the trend and you've got a real shock because then you've missed time so i'm guessing that i certainly use the 80 approach for doing those kind of rechecks as much as anything just so i don't miss anything yeah i find that even for patients for example most of my work is in an operating theater and i use primary survey in situations other than the obvious and transferring critically ill patients from the scene between hospital departments or wherever it's very useful to do an abcde and i do that routine even with elective cases which are not critically ill but i take them into theater from the anesthetic room and say right airway is the eye gel okay is the et tube okay is it functioning everything looks all right okay the et tube has a slip down a bronchus B, is the breathing acceptable? Capnography looks good. Saturation, happy with that, yeah. C, have they got a pulse? <laughs> have they got a normal ECG? If they haven't, and they did have before, I mean, worried, etc. everything going. D, are they sedated? And then E, obviously, looking at the environmental and things in terms of insulation, heat pads or whatever. That's just going into an operating theater. So it's a very useful system for a lot of situations. So before going into the ambulance, you've got them stabilized on the ground, but you run through all that lot before you move them. Because what you don't want to do is move and set off transport-wise with an unstable patient. For example, if I'm recovering a patient, I won't take a patient out of theater if, if their airway could be unstable, because I don't want them going off in a corridor on my way to recovery. So for you lot, it would be the same again before you move them particularly if you spend a bit of time stabilising them, you spend another two minutes just whizzing through everything to make sure they're safe to move. And I guess keeping that mentality of targeted interventions and targeted rechecking and using the structure to make sure you don't miss anything rather than necessarily doing as much of detail as you might have done right at the start. 
Yeah, absolutely. Hopefully you've checked all the things and those previously were okay. And this is just a quick check through because if you don't have a system, a checklist basically is what it is. And you could do this with somebody with, with a paper checklist if you wanted. It's always a problem because it's always pouring with rain, etc. and at night. So therefore, first five letters of the alphabet, most of us can remember those even in stress most of the time anyway. And um, so that's right. It's just a quick... Let me just make sure before I move in, once the ambulance is moving, helicopter perhaps even worse in a sense because there's even less room and you can't just stop. You know, if you want to recannulate somebody, it's probably easier in an ambulance because you can actually stop the ambulance. I don't know what it's like cannulating <laughs> in a moving helicopter. <laughs> they don't tend to do so well stop. You can hover them. I suppose you could hover them, I suppose, yeah. <laughs> Les, that's been absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. Oh, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you again for the invitation to take part in this. That's it for this week. If you have any comments or questions, visit the podcasters page and leave us a reply in the box at the bottom. Join us next week for another podcast from Basic Scotland.